The following audio is from The Village Church. More information about The Village Church is available at www.thevillagechurch.net. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and grab them? If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one somewhere around you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Once you have those, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Um, last time we were together, we talked about uh, really the nature of our relationship with God. And, and I said that it was imperative to really kind of understand how we relate to God through the lenses of two theological terms. And, and so those two theological terms were the first one was justification. And this is a legal term. Uh, and, it, and it basically means that we have been found innocent. So we are justified. The just judge of the universe bangs the gavel, forgives our sin and declares us innocent through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is an imputed innocence, not an earned innocence. You understand that? Um, so it's not that we're actually innocent, but rather that Christ imputes to us his good deeds, his total obedience, his perfection, and his holiness, so that when God views us, he sees the perfection of Christ and bangs the gavel and declares us innocent. And so that, that was the first component in understanding our relationship with God, but it's not the only one. Uh, so the first idea being justification, the second theological term that we discussed is the, uh, the term adoption, because God is not only the just judge of the universe that bangs the gavel and declares us innocent, but he is also our heavenly father that loves, delights, and has joy in us being his sons and daughters. Now, I know that's hard for some of us because most of us had daddies with issues. Anyone? Anybody's daddy have a couple of issues? If you're sitting next to your old man, get your hand down. All right, you just look at him right now and it's like, no, you're all in fist bump him, all right? So if your daddy had issues, then this idea can be tough. But here's the thing. Our heavenly father is not like our earthly fathers were. And as a dad, praise God for that. So he doesn't lack patience like I lack patience with my children. He, He doesn't. I get aggravated as easily as I get aggravated. Don't judge me right now. All right. He, he doesn't get right. This is not how our heavenly father interacts with us. He is long suffering, slow to anger, abounding in love. He says things to his children. No earthly father would ever say to his children. Ask me again. If I say, ask me again in my house, that's a threat. All right, so if I say, ask me again, my kids aren't going, okay, let me ask you again. They're, literally, they'll just walk away at that point. Ask me again, and they just move on. Uh, all right, so it's not, but our heavenly father, I mean, literally, Jesus said, this is what your father is like in heaven. And he begins to lay out, all right, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He compares this story to a persistent widow that just keeps asking the judge and asking the judge and asking. And, and the, the parable Jesus is saying has a wicked judge. And he's going, if a wicked judge will finally give in and listen, won't a loving father talks about how we give good gifts to our children as sinful as we are? And if we'll do that as broken fathers, how much more will our heavenly father do exceedingly and abundantly more than that? And so we have not only been justified by a judge, but loved by a heavenly father. And as we walked through that passage in Romans 8, you get to the crescendo of that text that's very popular among evangelicals where he says, who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? All right, it is God who justifies. That's in the context of us crying out, Abba, 
father, which isn't daddy father, because there wouldn't have been a context for calling a father daddy in the first century. I'd have been viewed as disrespectful and wicked. It was a high honor culture. We are a low honor culture. And so ultimately it wasn't daddy father, but father, father, like this is my dad. Like my dad can beat up your dad. So within the context of that text, we are seeing that we have a heavenly father that we can point to, boast in, and feel safe with because he's the king of the universe, because he is the sovereign over all. So what should I be afraid of? You see my pops? You see my own, like what would I, what would I possibly be afraid of? You think I'm nervous about making rent? You see my daddy? Uh, you, you think I'm worried about this difficult season? You think I'm at the end of my rope because of this struggle? Have you seen my father? My father's not ignorant to this. My father has not abandoned me. So he's not like our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers will let us down. Even if your earthly father was awesome, at some point in college, you began to see his weaknesses. Am I a liar? Like they were just awesome. And then you started, huh. <laughs> so our heavenly father has no weaknesses, does not fall short, delights in, is long-suffering with, has a great deal of pleasure and joy in his sons and daughters. And, and it's imperative for us to get both of those because it will not relationally be enough for you to understand that you're forgiven. You show me someone who loves Jesus Christ, I'll show you someone who understands adoption. You show me someone who's excited about the things of God, and I'll show you somebody who understands the adopting love of God made possible in Jesus Christ. And so that's the nature of our relationship with God. We have been justified, declared innocent, and then we have been called sons and daughters, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And that happened in an instant simultaneously at once. It, it wasn't like you were justified and then God just kind of put an ankle bracelet on you to watch and make sure you were cool. And then a couple of years later, he took the ankle bracelet off and go, I'll adopt you now that I know you're not going to steal anything. No, no, no. Happens in an instant. Now, it might've taken you a while to get to that instant. Like for me, I hung out in church for about a year and a half before I actually became a believer. And, and even longer than a year and a half, a year and a half in regards to being dialed into really wondering and considering and thinking. And, um, and, and so, but in a moment I was justified and I was adopted. And in that moment, what I gained was a positional holiness. And, and what that means is that since I have been justified and adopted, when God looks at me, he sees me as spotless and blameless in his sight. That is positional. It is because of him. It is not because of anything I have done. In fact, I am far from actually holy, but the Lord declares me holy in my position as his son justified by the blood of the lamb. All right. Now, my heavenly father, your heavenly father wants more for us than just positional holiness. He actually wants to transform our lives. He actually wants to free us up from the bondage of sin and decay. He, he's not just wanting positional holiness, but listen to this. He's actually after a manifest holiness, a transformation of our lives where our lives get more and more lined up with how he designed things to work and we begin to look more and more and more and more like Jesus. So positional holiness is spectacular. It's hard to get the mind around, but God 
isn't just after positional holiness. His plan is to transform our lives. And that leads us to our third term here, the term sanctification. Now, sanctification is not like justification and adoption in that it doesn't happen in a moment, but rather um, from the moment of conversion until heaven, you are being sanctified. Um, You are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit of God, making you more and more and more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And whereas justification and adoption are simply a God thing, you did nothing to receive it or get it. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit of God working in you and through your obedience to the pull of the Spirit to transform your lives. And so where justification, being declared innocent, and adoption, being called sons and daughters, are an act of God that you did nothing to have that label put on you, sanctification requires what we'll call grace-driven effort. Right? It, it means that we move towards the things of the Lord. So the big question then becomes, how? So that takes us to Colossians chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, comma. So let me stop. I promise you, we'll get through these 10 verses. Don't freak out. I can't keep you for hours. We have another service. If then you have been raised with Christ, comma. Look right at me. Sanctification is only for the sons and daughters of God. If you are not a believer, you are not being sanctified in your pursuit of self-betterment. You are simply running full speed down the wrong path. Sanctification belongs to the children of God alone. A better version of you is not sanctification. A better version of you is not sanctification. Sanctification belongs to the children of God. So how does it work? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, did you hear? That's what we already covered. That's adoption and justification. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this is that idea that justification and adoption have taken place so that now when God sees you, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when God looks down on you, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. When God looks down on you, he sees the good deeds of Jesus Christ. When God looks down on you, he sees the blamelessness that is in Jesus Christ. You are hidden with Christ in God. Let's keep going. Verse four. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then the text turns, verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its 
creator. So I, I want to stop here. And what you have in this text, and there are several others we could go to, is a type of blueprint for how the Holy Spirit is going to sanctify us. And, and that means not make us positionally holy because we're already there, but actually transform our lives so that we live manifest, visible, holy lives. And you see two components here. And, and the Puritans, who were not perfect men, uh, but plumbed the depths of the Word of God in, in a very beautiful way. I say they weren't perfect men because uh, it's, it's amazing to me how the depths of theology were wide open to them, but they missed some things at about the two foot mark, like how a guy can understand the Bible like these men understood the Bible and still own slaves baffles the mind uh, of this man to this day. And so the, the Puritans would use two words to explain how sanctification works. And we're going to learn those two words there. All right. Be fun, like a little seminary class. All right. The first word is vivification. Try it. Let's go. Vivification. I mean, I'll give you a B, B minus, all right? Vivification is simply a pursuit of the Lord. And so the first part of sanctification is the first four verses of Colossians 3. Set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated. And then the next verse clarifies it even more. Set your mind on things that are above above, not on things that are on the earth. So the first aspect of growing, not in positional holiness, but actual, tangible, visible holiness, which is what God desires us to grow in, is vivification, a setting our minds on the things that are above and getting our minds off of the things that are below. It is a change in mindset. And so what does that look like? I think Romans 12 helps us here. Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we go. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's moving towards functional holiness. How do you do that? By the renewal of your mind. Now, renewing your mind simply can't be memorizing verses of the Bible. Um, because we see that Jesus rebukes certain men in the Bible who actually had memorized the Bible but had no idea how to apply it to their lives, how to sit in it, how to be marinated in it, how to make it kind of ooze out of how they do life. And so when we're talking about the renewal of our minds, uh, maybe this will help. Um, last year, last October, uh, my family and I moved um, to a new house. We were in Highland Shores, and we moved um, to Old Highland Village. And, and so all that really changed. It didn't push us any closer, any farther from the church. In fact, it's about the same equal distance. Um, but when I leave the church and I head down Highland Village Road and I come to the stoplight at Highland Shores, I used to make a left to get to my house. And then I had to make a right. And there was a season of about six weeks where I was having to cognitively tell myself, don't make a left here. You don't live there anymore. In fact, there was a day, and I'll just out myself as being a moron. Uh, I literally made left, made it into the driveway before I was like, wait. <laughs> and then pulled out, waved to the people that bought our house. I didn't forget anything. I'm just a moron. And then drove to my new house. And the move changed everything about how we got to places. Changed how we got to Interstate 35. Changed how I got to my in-laws. Changed how I got to home group. Changed everything about where we went. But there was a season where when it came time to go somewhere, I had to think, how do I get there now? And the renewing of our mind is really that idea of pulling up to the light and going, I don't live there anymore. I live there. And our mind is renewed 
that's not my house. That's my house. I make the right here. I don't make the left because that's where I live. That's not where I live. This is the renewing of our mind. And then later the scriptures would talk about taking every thought captive unto the Lord, that we watch our minds. We watch what we're thinking. Like, you know, this. nobody talks to you like you talk to you. You talk to you all the time. You're talking to you right now. Be quiet. I'm talking. All right. In the end, we're always talking. So taking every thought captive is the idea of I'm going to watch what I'm thinking and make sure it lines up with where I now live. This is the renewing of our mind. This is vivification. I want to know him, see him, meditate upon him, have him transform me. And this is why the Bible is so unbelievably important for the children of God. Because it reminds us where our house is and it reminds us of the streets that lead to our home. And it reminds us we don't take a left here anymore. We take a right here. It helps us take every thought captive. We go, that's not true. This is true. Oh, to use your imagination when you read the Bible to grow in your knowledge of God. I'm not talking about make stuff up when you read the Bible. I'm talking about putting yourself in that moment so you can really, really feel in your guts who our God is. Like to slow down and read the the story of the woman caught in adultery, but imagine yourself there. Uh, Imagine what it's like for that prostitute to be crying all over the feet of Jesus, snot to be running down for all the shame and guilt that she must be feeling, and to just watch Jesus pick up her head and look her in the eyes. Like that, that's the kind, if you'll slow down, if you'll think, this is my God, this is how God interacts with with people who are walking in this kind of darkness, maybe maybe you'll have that same grace for me. This is the kind of thing that fuels uh, affection, knowing the word of God, putting yourself into the word of God, believing the word of God. This is vivification. It's a renewing of the mind. It's a training of the mind to think rightly about the Lord, to understand where our new home is, so that we don't make a left to a house with no foundation that might look pretty on the inside, but it's crumbling on the inside. Might look pretty on the outside, but it's crumbling on the inside. This is vivification. Um, but the next idea, uh, and you'll, you'll actually probably be um, more familiar with this term, is the term mortification. So you have vivification and mortification. Let's give mortification a try. Okay, you know, now we're B plus. We're moving, all right? Went from B minus to B plus. So vivification and mortification, and they happen simultaneously. So you're not, let me do vivification, and then I'll get to mortification. No, 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 no. While you're growing in your knowledge of the Lord, renewing your mind, you are putting to death, therefore, what is sinful in you. All right, this goes back, if you've been here for this whole series, this goes back to putting the lion to death. We don't tame our sin. We don't try to make it behave. We don't teach it to do tricks. We don't try to control it. We seek to put sin to death. And the Bible clearly says in this text that there are things that need to be put to death in us. So while we're renewing our minds, while we're growing in our understanding of Jesus, while we're understanding who God is and what he's like, while we're growing in our understanding of the word, we're putting things to death. And the list here in Colossians is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth and do not lie to one another. So to go back to my illustration, um, we are pulling up to the light 
and we are feeling in our heart a pull towards sexual immorality, a pull towards anger, a pull towards wrath, a, a pull towards something that the Bible clearly states is sinful. And in this moment, we put to death. We're not taking the left because we don't live there anymore. We're taking the right because we live over there. And there is a reminder that occurs at that light that that needs to die. I live that way. Life is this way. Death is that way. I'm choosing life. And we make the right. And here's what I can honestly say. I don't have to talk to myself about making the left or right anymore. I don't have to talk to myself anymore about how do I get to my in-laws the fastest way from this new house. I don't have to do that anymore. There's a season where the mind will get renewed to the point where you're not battling yourself all the time or reminding yourself all the time. Now, I want to be fair that, that those old battles have just turned into newer battles, but, but they in some ways seem easier and in some ways seem harder. But there comes a point where the mind is renewed to the point where every time you're at that light, it's not this epic throwdown fight for what's right before the Lord. It's just, what would the Lord have me do? Okay, I need to make the right. Put to death, therefore, what is inside of you. And then here's something I, I want you to consider. I, I've um, learned this uh, myself over the years, that there are things that are explicitly sinful that the Lord wants us all to put to death in our lives. And then here's something that I have found helpful. Uh, what I have learned about myself over the years is that there are morally neutral things that also affect me negatively. Anyone else? Like there are morally neutral things. There are things that there's no Bible verse that would say, don't do this. And yet when I'm around it, in it, or uh, participating, it robs me affections. It creates drift away from the Lord. Rather than pulling me towards the Lord, it affects my confidence in the Lord. And so I think you can kind of see that idea fleshed out in Hebrews 12. Um, Hebrews 12, one through two says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that's referring to Hebrews 11, where you find the roll call of faith, such a beautiful text. I mean, some people um, conquer armies and some people get conquered by armies and God calls them both faithful. That's important to know, lest we define success ignorantly. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, right? That's justification and adoption. He is the author. He is the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame and is seated at the right hand of God. All right, so you had two pieces here. Let us throw off every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. So are there weights? Are there encumbrances? Are there things that are entangling you in your pursuit of Jesus that might be morally neutral but are affecting your joy in the Lord? And so I don't have a ton of time to get into my list, but there are things that definitely affect my relationship with the Lord that are not overtly sinful, but for whatever reason, because of how I'm wired, because of the bent of my heart, they will create drift in me. And sanctification is about pressing into the Lord, having our mind renewed, and being very serious about putting anything and everything to death that might either be explicitly in the scripture sinful or anything that might even hinder my love for the Lord and my delight in the Lord. And what I've noticed is that people don't tend to be that serious about sanctification. 
like the response, there's nothing wrong with that, or where does it say that in the Bible, is really kind of a silly response. If it's affecting you negatively in regards to your love for the Lord, passion for the Lord, desire to follow after the Lord, then I don't know why you wouldn't want to cut that out of your life. So, I mean, if you're 20-something and you're going to the clubs, I can't find a verse that would go, and I know you could even go, well, Jesus went, okay, and Jesus seeing fools converted and healing people and casting out demons. I'm guessing you were just doing some, um, some martinis and dancing scantily dressed. Let's please not compare these two things. If that's leading to this, if you going to the club is not fueling your passion to know the Lord, see him exalted and see others worship him, I'm just saying be careful there. Probably not wise. Probably not wise. And you could you could put anything in this plug. It can't be legalistic because everybody's list is going to be different. Like even weird things. Like I, I find that if I sleep in, it affects me. Isn't that weird? Like if I sleep in, If I don't get up, get in the word, slow things down, lay my life before the Lord and work at making my heart happy in God. Then, man, I I just will not be as aware. I will not be as dialed in. I will not be looking through the lenses of who God is and what he has done for me as I interact with my children, as I seek to love my wife, as I try to lead here, as I study and prep to preach. I I just won't. So sleeping in, it affects my delight in the Lord. And so I'm going to set my alarm. Even on your day off? Yeah, even on my day off. Now, it's not as early, but I need to get up early. I don't. If the kids wake me up, I lost. If the kids wake me up, I lost. So I've got to beat them up in the morning. Golly, what is wrong with y'all? What's wrong with you people? All right, it's crazy. Just got to beat them up in the morning. Got to get up before they do. You guys make me sick. Really, you do. All right, now, that's... That's mortification. We want to put it to death. Is it morally neutral? Sure, but if it's affecting you, it's a lion. Pull it out in the street and put a bullet in it. Now, there are hurdles to sanctification. Um, So as God's growing us from our positional holiness into lives that look more and more and more like Jesus in more glad obedience, there are some hurdles. Uh, Two in particular that I've noticed. Uh, The first hurdle is what uh, I'll just call a mowing over of sin. And, and so rather than dealing with heart issues, we simply identify symptoms and try to tra- treat the symptoms rather than getting into the disease. Uh, and so I think a place that we see this in the scripture is when Jeremiah is unpacking how the false prophets had harmed Israel. And here's what he says in Jeremiah chapter six, verse 14. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They have healed the wound lightly and are saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. This is a mowing over of sin. So let's look at it really in two places that I think will be helpful for us. Uh, I think the first place to really watch for mowing over sin rather than actually dealing with it, mowing over a symptom, treating a symptom rather than the heart issue, uh, it manifests itself in all sorts of places. Let me show you a couple that have been most common here. Um, One, this most commonly reveals itself in relational strife and conflict. You talking about marriage, Matt? Uh Uh-huh. Uh, co-workers and cousins, yep. In my home group, absolutely. In my neighborhood, yes. Listen to me. 
God is at work in the pain points. Don't ever despise pain points. God's working in them most often to reveal something about you. Most often to reveal something about you. And so what I've seen over the years is men and women who will have a brand new set of friends every two to three years and their storyline going back as far as they can remember is how they were betrayed and how someone didn't treat them right and how someone took advantage of them and how, and you can literally watch a, a person every two to three years have a complete new set of friends and every harm, every betrayal, everything that has gone wrong, none of it has ever made them go, what's going on in me, it has always been what's wrong with them and what they don't do. Listen, you want to know what's actually going on in your heart? Hang out with people and be truly known. Nobody thinks they're proud until they get married, right? Like I never met a single person that thinks they're selfish. Ever. Never met a 22-year-old single man or woman that's like, man, I'm not selfish at all. And yet you get married, what do you find out? Selfish. Like crazy selfish, like wicked selfish. Now what happened? Well, now you're, you're living in the house with somebody. All right, it's not just another dirty, filthy dude that hasn't been trained yet. Right? You, you start to learn. See, the reason community becomes so important is it's in the fire of community that things about you that you hate about you will actually be revealed. If you're entitled, it'll come out as you interact honestly with people. If you're proud, it's going to come out as you interact honestly with people. You an angry person? You know what's going to pull that out of you? People. Prone to depression? Prone to run and hide? Prone to walk in anxiety? Prone to be negative all the time? You know where that's going to flesh itself out? Among people. This is why we avoid it. This is why people are really comfortable in big churches. Because that's not going to happen in big church because you can hide. You don't have to really belong. You just kind of come hang out, be encouraged by some songs and a sermon. But that's not what the Lord's called you to. The Lord's called you to others. As iron sharpens iron, so uh, one man sharpens another. Right? I, I mean, I'm guessing there's no metal workers in here. Maybe there are. Um, but that's a violent process. To sharpen and chisel and, and knock rust off of is a violent process. There's sparks and fire. There's a hammer involved. And so what I've seen over the years is when conflict um, shows its face, then what is easy in our context is just renegotiate the terms of that relationship or cut those relationships and go find new ones without ever really digging into the heart to see what God might be doing. That, that's a mowing over. I'm not going to deal with my part, with what's going on in my heart. I'm simply going to be an expert in their weaknesses and my strength, and I'm going to find friends who appreciate me. If the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, if what's actually wrong with us is not symptomatic, but rather something going on in the heart, then is it not true that symptoms reveal the disease? If you're always in conflict, if you're always being betrayed, if you always feel underappreciated, you know, that's a heart issue that you need to check out. Don't mow over that. It's not just, I need friends that understand me. I need a spouse who really gets me. You need to be very, very slow to reconstruct or cut off relationships. God's at work in pain points. 
Most pain points stem from relationships. Don't be too quick to rearrange. I'm not saying there's not a time to rearrange and cut off. There absolutely is. But not before we do the hard work of seeing what's being revealed in our heart through doing life with other people. Don't mow over. Let it lead you into your heart to see what's going on there. Uh, A second place that that we've really seen um, this play itself out, this idea, this hurdle in sanctification of mowing over, dealing with symptoms rather than dealing with the heart is around the idea of addictions. Um, So the the village church, uh, praise God, has been a place that a lot of uh, men and women addicted to drugs and alcohol have found some freedom and have wrestled through their addiction. In fact, uh, two instances that I can remember in my 11 years is we uh, found a guy in the Martin building over at the HV campus with a heroin needle in his arm, had to dial 911, have an ambulance come get him. And then we had uh, a woman stumble into a membership class years ago, uh, drunk and attack Paul Mathis. Uh, If you were around when sweet Paul was here, I mean, just the sweetest man, really maybe sweetest human being ever. Uh, and got attacked by a drunk lady at a membership class. And that was the type of uh, griminess that was here that God was really working in people who were seriously struggling with addictions. And, and I love that because the gospel meets people where they are, even in that type of dark addiction. Um, and, and so ultimately what we found is that people, uh, what I think you'll even see the Bible teaches is that people who are walking in addictions to drugs and alcohol or pornography or really any type of addiction, what they do if they just address the addiction, which is wise. If they're not dealing with things at the heart level, if they're not looking at what drives that addiction, what they need from that addiction, will simply replace that addiction with something else. They will not be transformed. They will simply replace addiction for addiction. And that's not freedom. Now, now I'm saying this knowing full well that there is a mental and, and physical component to addiction. So I'm not saying that ignorant of those realities, but I am saying with full confidence that if the heart isn't changed, managing the behavior doesn't set anybody free. It might extend your life, but that life is not a life of freedom. And so this is a mowing over. Let me deal with the situation, but not necessarily deal with my heart. Let me manage the symptom, but not really uproot the disease. Again, this is a training of a lion. This is a trying to get the apex predator of sin and death to behave, believing that, that we can make it do what we want it to do. This is a mowing over of the weeds, not an uprooting of heart issues, which is what the Lord's after. So here's what makes this hurdle difficult. Mowing over feels right. In fact, my experience with people who are mowing over is that they're just completely unaware that that's what they're doing. Like, cause doesn't it, it just seems like it'd be right to, okay, man, I've got this addiction. I need to address this addiction. That feels right, doesn't it? Hey, this relationship is difficult. This person gets up on my nerves. These people don't get on my nerves. It seems wise to get out of the drama and find a group without drama. Oh no, there's more drama in this group because wherever you are, drama follows. Right? It feels right. And And yet, without digging into the heart of the issue, there isn't any real freedom. And and there isn't 
any real life, that fullness of life that Christ has promised us, isn't experienced when you're mowing over the weeds. See, when we're talking about these hurdles, what we're talking about is a loving father that says, I have more for you than this. I have more for you than this. So if we're going to really flesh out this idea of positional holiness and then God making us more and more manifestly, um, visibly holy, think of it like this. Um, I, I have three children. My, my son, Reed Chandler, is always going to be my son. Like, if he turns 15 years old and he goes, forget your way of life, forget your God, forget the things you value, I'm going to do my own thing. A couple of things, that will be devastating to me. And I will pray and fast and plead with God on high to rescue him uh, for the rest of my life. And if he does just that, he's still my son. But I want more for him than that. I, I want him to love his wife better than I love mine. I, I want him to love his kids better than I'm loving him. I want him to love the Lord more than I love the Lord right now. I want his life to be wrung out for the glory of God in greater ways than my life's being wrung out for the glory of God. I desire all that for him. Now, if he doesn't want any of that, that doesn't change the fact that he's my son. But I'm talking and praying and laughing and playing and encouraging. I got, I want more for you than just to be a channel. I want more for you than just namesake. I want joy. I want life. I want love. I want you to understand there's a greater joy to be had than anything you could experience on earth. Read, I want you beyond the sun, not under it. And if he doesn't want any part of that, he'll still be my boy. Positional holiness is God saying, you're my son, you're my daughter. Sanctification and going after the heart rather than mowing over weeds is God saying, son, Daughter, I got more for you than this. Don't do this. That pain point, that broken relationship, that pull towards sexual immorality, that anger in your heart, I'm revealing something about your heart here. Don't just piddle around with the symptom. Pay attention here to what's going on. And, and then the second hurdle, the first one would be to mow over sin, to, to simply address symptoms and not get down into the heart. But, but then the second one is really, and this is the favorite one of church folk, um, is just covering up. How you doing? I'm fine. Things cool at home? Yeah, man, everything's great. House is on fire behind you. Wife's loading a, loading a hunting, your hunting rifle, uh, all right, trying to, she's studying on the internet how to kill you and get away with it. Everything cool at home? Oh, yeah, man, we're just more in love than ever. All right, covering it up is what you do on social media. I've never seen anybody take a picture of macaroni and cheese and hamburger that they were having for dinner, and we're just like, this is us tonight. No, I mean, you, you wait till you got like that plate of something, Right? Uh, you, 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 you're like when you're on your date and you know, not when you're cussing each other out in the car, but now that you're like, Oh, I'm out with boo tonight. I mean, you want to kind of front that everything is great when it's not. All right. That's what we do on social media. All right. It's not like today's been awful. I'm full of sin. Just like worshiping Jesus picture of you light in that, you know, trying to get it just right with the verse. All right. Social media is covering it up. It's a, my heart's not really there, but I want to act like it is. So here is the pull that we're all going to have to watch. There is a pull in church life to adopt language and posture that are not a reality in our heart. 
to cover up, to go back to Genesis, to sew together fig leaves to hide our nakedness. Um, One of the reasons I want to continually come back to what Jesus has done for you in regards to the cross, namely being outing you, is that there should be in and among the people of God a gladness in our weaknesses. And and yet, somehow, we we really believe that that really what brings God glory is, is for us to be super strong. The redeeming work of Jesus Christ doesn't make you superhuman. It actually makes you human. It it makes you all that God designed you to to be growing towards. And listen, can I talk with you? If we actually believe in sanctification, isn't sanctification and the idea of it a declaration that we're not there yet? So why would you ever pretend to be? Listen, one of the greatest things you could ever do is just go, hey, I don't understand. Hey, I don't know where I am. Hey, I'm not quite sure what I believe. Look, I'm not reading the Bible. I don't understand it. Rather than regurgitating what you heard in a sermon. Gosh, that's just dumb. Like to try to pretend you're more than you are to impress people who are trying to pretend that they're more than they are. Oh, take joy in weakness. Like David said it this way in Psalm 32, three through four. For when I kept silent, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Did you hear me say earlier, don't ever despise pain points? Did you hear what you you see how much God loved David? I groaned all night because your hand was heavy on me. So he couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. Why? Because the Lord's hand was heavy on him. You praise God for the heavy hand of God on your life. His wrath would be to not be heavy handed with you. His wrath would be to not let you feel the conviction that's leading you towards holiness. His wrath would be do whatever you want. That's his wrath. His heavy handedness is his love for you. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. We know about that, don't we? Selah. So Selah's in that text right there. It, it, in the Hebrew, it just means stop reading. All right, uh, Selah's like a period exclamation mark. Stop. Think about what we just said. All right, that's Selah. Dwell on this. Think on this. Don't be too quick to move past this. David said, when I kept quiet. My bones wasted away. My vitality, my energy, my life force, my essence, my joy, my energy dried up like in a summer heat. Selah, consider. See, here's what you do when you refuse to be fully known. Um, One, you cut yourself out from actually being fully known. And then two, once you do that, you have cut yourself off from experiencing the manifest, tangible grace of God. And so to be honest about where we are gives us a shot at going somewhere else. But until we're able to do that, we're not going anywhere. Uh, Not only that, but I have found that the love of God has been made manifest to me most often through the saints, especially in moments where I'm weak and not strong. Um, So to tell you how it plays out, and then I want to just kind of encourage you and we'll um, transition into uh, some time of worship and communion. 
uh, I meet with our home group on Sunday nights, most Sunday nights, not every Sunday night. In fact, uh, I, I totally get those of you who are like, man, it's really difficult to get to. I mean, I completely get that. But uh, uh, we get together and, and some aspect of what we talk about is where we're doing well and where we're not doing well and where we're struggling and where. And, and then when I lay down, this is an area where I want to go left and I know I should go right. This is a spot in my life where I'm feeling the pull towards what I know the Lord would not have me do. Well, I feel the pull towards what I know the Lord either explicitly or implicitly doesn't want me involved in. When I'm starting to get lazy in vivification and mortification, I lay that down. And then those dudes call me two days later. How are things going, Matt? Hey, when you were laying in your bed last night, falling asleep, what were you thinking about? Where's your mindset right now? You, You taking every thought captive? Chandler, you, you considering what is true? You lying to yourself, Matt? You, you know what's happening in that moment? This tangible presence of God with flesh and blood on it. It's going, I hadn't abandoned you. I'm here. You're being heard. I want to encourage you, Matt, towards holiness. I want to encourage you towards right living. I want to encourage you towards purity. And I'm going to speak through this vessel. I'm going to speak through Josh Patterson. I'm going to speak through Michael Bleeker. I'm going to speak through Brad Payne. I'm going to speak through Brian Miller into your life that you are loved. I am aware of what you're fighting for and I am with you. And by the Holy Spirit's power, uh, I'm going to grant you obedience and the ability to be obedient. Quit covering up. Look at me. It's dumb. You're purchasing for yourself nothing and enslaving yourself to much that you don't want to be a slave to. Struggle with sexual immorality? Confess it. Struggle with anger? Confess it. Struggle with lust? Confess it. Struggling with addictions? You you drag darkness into the light. It's the only way it loses its power. Oh, that we might be an honest people who get over the hurdle of mowing over and covering up and rust gladly in the grace of God as he moves us towards a tangible, visible holiness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that not only have you called us sons and daughters, But you want so much more for us than just the name, just the title. Father, I thank you that you are transforming us, sending us both joy and sorrow, creating pain points that will reveal things in our hearts that you're serious about removing. Um, Pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters in this place. Um, that are currently mowing over sins. They are stuck in cycles where they can't break it. They are experts in everyone else's weaknesses and not their own. They have identified a singular thing that must be overcome that's a behavior rather than the heart leading to that behavior. God, I pray that you'd grant them wisdom. I pray that as David prayed, that you would search them and know them and reveal to them where there are heart issues that must be dealt with. For my brothers and sisters that are covering up God, I I pray um, that they would rejoice in being dressed in righteousness by you and and not try to cover themselves up with fig leaves. God, we would take off and and lay before you 
um, what you already know about us, our weaknesses, our frailties, our tendencies, our drifts, our foolishness, and, and might confession be made and darkness um, give way to light and might we rejoice in being fully known. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Village Church located in Texas. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about the Village Church, please visit us online at www.thevillagechurch.net.